0: not elegantly,
1: but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Hello, and welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We're your hosts for today. I'm Leah Littman. And I'm Melissa Murray, and we're alone. And you know what that means, <laughs> Leah.
2: <laughs> Hi Jinx Will ensue. Okay. So listeners, we have a very dense episode for you because the court is frantically trying to catch up and finish by the end of June, which is when it historically finishes releasing opinions in argued cases. And at the beginning of last week it had left 29 opinions and argued cases to release. So with 3 weeks left in June, that averages to about 9 opinions a week and we got 5 opinions on Monday and 6 on Wednesday.
1: So way to save it all for the very end, fellas. Right. Um, none of the opinions that we did get were the abortion case, the guns case, West Virginia versus EPA on climate regulation or religious liberty. I could All B-sides. <laughs> All B-sides. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if I would go that far. Um Maybe I mean, may-
2: maybe they're like Prince B-sides
1: where they're actually yes, right. really good. They're exactly. really good. Exactly. Or yeah. like Taylor's from the vault. Um, yes. I mean, the opinions themselves were bad. The issues were important. That's you know, important to underscore. Um, but there I are mean, still, B sides, just that these are not the things people are waiting for. Yeah, totally fair. Totally fair. Um, there are still 18 opinions outstanding, and many of the ones that are outstanding are just huge.
2: So we did get important opinions, and we want to recap them. And we also want to just underscore that in these opinions, two really big themes are starting to emerge and coalesce. And no, it's not that this is a consensus-driven, nonpartisan court. No, no. One major theme is that it's your fault if someone else messed up because our system of laws and justice, in quotation marks, isn't available to correct errors. That is a major theme of this set of opinions. The other major theme is textual healing, which is to say that these opinions evince big textual energy. And I think this is the kind of thing that could heal some of these rifts on the court and among the
1: justices. That textual healing, it'll do it. Feels so good to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, in addition to going over as many opinions as we can cram in to the time that we have, we will also have your weekly Ginny Tonic segment for you. Cheers. Um, because truly, more and more just keeps coming out when it comes to Ginny, as we predicted would happen, I might add. Cassandra um, Club, Ginny Virgin. <laughs> Right. And I do want to make an important note that it was Melissa, Melissa Murray, who coined the term <laughs> Ginny Tonic. We are not actually the same We're person. We're not the same person. And she <laughs> does
2: want this on the record in case she ever becomes a federal judge, because I think this is going to be bad <laughs> the
0: confirmation.
1: Well, no, no, that's not even it. I mean, okay. I feel like if people are uncertain who said what, the usual default is you say the funny stuff. I say the inappropriate stuff, right? Like you, you're the clever one. I'm the like insert expletive troledo is Justice Alito person. Yeah,
2: I, I, I think you're selling yourself short. Um, you are incredibly <laughs> clever. You said some very funny things um, that have literally left like, like last week, one of your outtakes was – we, we couldn't even include it. It was so <laughs> both <laughs> profane and funny, which is a hard <laughs> – Hard duality to embody.
1: Always trying to thread that needle. Um, so, with that thematic overview slash preview, let's get into the cases.
2: Okay, first up from the court was Garland versus Gonzalez. So SCOTUS decided this major immigration case that will have very significant consequences on immigrants' ability to enforce their constitutional rights. That said, it could also have the effect of tamping down on states like Texas, for example, having the ability to control Democratic presidents' immigration policy. So this is me doing my very best, Kate Shaw, to have a silver <laughs> lining here. <laughs> The specific issue in Garland versus Gonzalez is whether federal courts have the power to issue class-wide injunctions when a case involves certain provisions of federal immigration law. So let me back up a minute. Classwide injunctions are injunctions that apply to an entire class of people, as the name suggests, um, so a very large group, rather than to just a few specific individuals who are plaintiffs in a case. And injunctions, of course, are judicial orders that require or prohibit defendants from doing something. So here, a group of immigrants sought an injunction requiring the executive branch to give them individualized bond hearings to determine whether to continue to detain them beyond six months while the government figured out their immigration case and whether or not to deport them.
1: So the case involved the meaning of a provision of federal law that reads as follows. No court other than the Supreme Court shall have jurisdiction or authority to enjoin or restrain the operation of certain provisions of federal immigration law, Other than with respect to the application of such provisions to an individual alien, that's the word that the federal immigration law uses, against whom proceedings under such part have been initiated. So in a 6-3 opinion by Justice Samuel Xenofolito Alito- That's a good one. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I try. The court concluded that this statute does not allow a federal court to enjoin, that is, to direct, to prescribe, or impose by order or restrain provisions of federal immigration law on a class wide basis.
2: So, Justice Sotomayor wrote the primary dissent for the three Democratic appointees. And technically, I I think it's actually a concurrence because she agrees that the immigrants should lose here, but she doesn't agree with the reasoning that the majority employs. Um, But it still has very strong dissenti flavor, and that may just be because she's really taking it to Justice Alito. So she described the majority's opinion as purportedly textualist, but, as she says, in truth elevates piecemeal dictionary definitions and policy concerns over plain meaning and context. So that is kind of a sick textual burn, if if you will. And, and I think maybe the seeds of a new merch line, purportedly textualist.
1: Purportedly textualist could provide, I feel like, a starting point for us mm-hmm. to come up with that one singular merch line we're still searching for. But yeah, I did love that line.
2: So she also warned that the majority's opinion will leave many vulnerable non-citizens unable to protect their rights. And that's because of how immigration proceedings work. The federal government detains many, many people for immigration-related reasons, and people who contest their status in immigration proceedings, that is, people who say they're not removable or who say that they're entitled to various forms of relief, don't actually have a right to counsel. So let me repeat that. You don't have a constitutional right to counsel in immigration proceedings. So that is a problem.
1: What class-wide injunctive relief did in that world was to ensure that if a court concluded, no, the people who are detained under this provision are in fact entitled to bond hearings, then everyone who was being detained under that provision would actually get a bond hearing because an injunction ordered and required under a threat of contempt the executive branch to actually give every individual a bond hearing
2: so if one person had a great lawyer who successfully argued this and got them a bond hearing and a class-wide injunction it would apply to all of the non-citizens who are
1: making the same claim even if they did not have the benefit of good lawyering exactly it would benefit everyone but now without the possibility of class-wide injunctive relief Every single immigration applicant will have to bring their own individual case and raise in their own individual case, you know, you need to give me a bond hearing. And without a constitutional right to counsel for a group of people who might not be native or fluent English speakers and say following every single development in immigration law, that's going to result in a lot of people falling through the cracks and into possibly excruciatingly long immigration detention.
2: Could that possibly be the reason? (laughs) Is that a feature or a bug of this opinion?
1: <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason why I called him Xenofolito.
2: So Justice Sotomayor went further and, and said it in this way. As she put it, it's one matter to expect non-citizens facing these obstacles to defend against their removal in immigration court. It is another entirely to place upon each of them the added burden of contesting systemic violations of their rights through discrete collateral federal court proceedings. The burdens will fall on those least able to vindicate their rights, as well as the law firms and nonprofit organizations that will endeavor to assist as many of these non-citizens as their capacity permits. So she's actually making a kind of structural argument. Yeah. Like, there is a whole problem here with access to justice and the system, and this, only, this opinion exacerbates it.
1: It's also worth pointing out that the majority's rule, I think, is pretty bad for judicial yeah. administration, like requiring a bunch of people to file the same case over and over in the federal yeah. courts individually isn't great for just efficiency or administration. And that's or what judicial actions, resources. Like, I mean, no. Yeah. yeah. Like- and, you know, this is supposed to be what class actions could address, you know, systemic, unconstitutional government conduct.
2: But hey, if you only take like a fifth of the cases presented to you, or less than a fifth. Like, what do you care? Like, docket we're control is for
1: suckers. Basically, um, basically. So, docket controls for lower federal court judges. <laughs> exactly. Not for us kings. I th- also think there's a reason why Justice Sotomayor called the majority's opinion purportedly textualist because. The relevant clause in the statute that says, well, you can enjoin these provisions with respect to the application of such provisions to an individual against whom proceedings have been initiated, doesn't distinguish between class actions on one hand and non-class actions on the other. The statute doesn't even say class actions. And if a class, that is all of the people that a lawsuit was filed on behalf of, included only those people against whom immigration proceedings had been initiated, then the injunction would apply only to them as permitted by the statute. And, you know, other provisions in federal immigration law do specifically list class actions. So it's weird to read this provision as about class actions when the Congress that enacted the statute knew how to refer to them.
2: It's also worth noting that in a prior case, Califano, the court had interpreted a provision of the Social Security Act to permit class actions, even though the statute provided only that, quote, any individual could obtain judicial review. So there is another statutory analog that the majority could have used to analyze this. And the court rejected the government's argument that the word individual required a case-by-case adjudication of claims under Section 205G that's compatible with class relief.
1: Yeah. I mean, this opinion is really extreme. That's X-T-R-E-M-E, textualism, if there ever was some. You know, Justice Alito is just going like straight Leroy Jenkins on immigration law here. Who's, um, wait, who's Leroy Jenkins? Do you really not
2: know? Is this – this is? am I really on the back foot here?
1: <laughs> yeah. No, this is a cultural <laughs> reference that I was Jenkins? able to – okay. So it was this hilarious video of someone playing a a video game with their friends. Mm -hmm. And the friends develop this strategy of we're going to like hold back and wait. And then this one guy just decides to go on the attack into the room against the strategy. And as he does it, he yells, Leroy Jenkins. I've never heard of this.
2: Like You're you're going to have to look that up. Thank you. Like, I, I learned something like cultural from that. This. this is amazing. I mean, who is Leroy Jenkins? I'm going to use this on my kids. They're going to be There you like, go. There you be, go. Like, how, do you, how do you know about Leroy Judkins? Like, <laughs> I know everything. I know where you spend your time, I know what you're doing at every hour of the day.
1: It's going to help me. Okay. Oh. Um, Did also want to note on the purportedly textualist bona fides, uh, invoking our co-host who is absent, Kate Shaw, who previously invoked uh, Victoria Norris and Bill Eskridge's article, Textual Gerrymandering, this opinion might be one of the worst examples of textual gerrymandering and decontextualization I've ever seen because the opinion just singles out the phrase an individual alien and is like, therefore, you know, this means it can't apply to class actions, even though the statute doesn't say that. And like read in context, it's just not clear what it does. So there
2: is a possible upshot to this opinion. Our former guest, Aaron Reichland Melnick of Immigration Council, wrote on Twitter that he thinks that Justice Alito's majority opinion quote, eliminates most of the lawsuits that Texas at all have been bringing against the Biden administration. So Texas, with the help of some federal judges, has been effectively controlling President Biden's immigration (laughs) policy. Um, So they did try to do this under President Obama as well. So I don't want to suggest that this is unprecedented or novel, um, but it does sort of single out uh, Democratic administrations. But Texas or other states have filed suits challenging the Biden administration's attempt to end the Remain in Mexico policy, um, the attempt to end the public charge rule, as well as President Biden's enforcement priorities in immigration cases and a bunch of other things. So According to Melnick, Justice Alito's opinion concluded that you can't get an injunction that restrains the operation of the government's efforts to enforce or implement the relevant statutes unless it's with respect to persons against whom enforcement proceedings have begun. But that's what Texas is Done in some of those cases, and recall that in the remain in Mexico argument, SCOTUS requested additional briefing on whether Texas's suit was prohibited by this provision. Um, so, you know, Texas has filed suit seeking an injunction that doesn't apply in cases in which people aren't subject to immigration enforcement proceedings. So. Now, some of Texas's lawsuits could precede those that seek vacature of a rule, that is a court setting aside a rule under the Administrative Procedures Act, rather than an injunction, even though those consequences are the same.
1: And one other possible avenue for relief that this opinion doesn't address is the propriety of class-wide declaratory relief. So instead of an injunction, you know, this court would issue a declaration that, this statute means this, or this statute is invalid, or something like that.
2: All right, so shall we move along? Let's go. I want to call attention to another case, um, Dinespe versus the United States, which is a really significant and I think super interesting federal Indian law case that produce a really remarkable lineup of strange bedfellows here. So we previewed this case on an earlier show, and it's about whether prosecutions that happen in so-called CFR courts, CFR's Court for Code of Federal Regulations, for violations of tribal law bar a subsequent prosecution by the federal government and federal
1: court under the double jeopardy clause. So just a quick recap about what CFR courts are. Um, Tribes are distinct sovereigns from the federal government or the states, and some tribes choose to maintain and operate their own courts, tribal courts, where they enforce tribal law. Other tribes, however, have opted to rely on the CFR courts that are established by the Code of Federal Regulations, and those courts also enforce tribal law. And the question here is whether when a tribe uses a CFR court, can there be a subsequent prosecution in federal court um, by the federal government for violations of federal law? Here, the tribe was arguing that there can be a subsequent prosecution. The tribe's argument was that CFR courts were the tribe's courts, or at least were exercising tribal authority when they punish people for violations of tribal law. So the case is
2: fascinating in part because it features a recurrent conflict in Indian law between a claim of tribal authority and tribal sovereignty on the one hand— and a claim of individual rights on the other. So here, Mr. Dinesby claims his right to be free from being put in jeopardy twice for the same offense is violated when he's prosecuted in the CFR court and then subsequently in a federal court. But the tribe says, we want to maintain our courts, the courts that we've selected, the CFR courts, in order to prosecute these crimes without precluding a subsequent prosecution. And that's in part because federal law has greatly limited the extent of penalties that tribal law can impose. It's also because prosecutions in CFR courts might be more expeditious than those in federal court. But it's also because the tribe views the maintenance of the CFR court and the application of tribal law in those courts as an expression of tribal sovereignty. And that's the part of it that I think always gave us a little bit of pause, I think, about Dinesby's argument. Um, And I think it also animates the Gorsuch dissent here. There's a kind of false consciousness argument that says, you know, the tribes say these are our courts, but they're wrong, or that the tribes say recognizing these as our courts would be good for tribal authority, but that the tribes are wrong.
1: So the opinion was 6-3. Justice Barrett wrote the majority. Justice Gorsuch wrote the dissent, where he was joined by Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. And I'll be honest, that lineup in an Indian law case really did give me pause because I had thought, you know, that the government was Right here, Um, you know, Mm -hmm. but the fact that Justice Gorsuch, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan, you know, are on the other side really does, like, you know, (gasps) give me pause. Are Um, you a good person? (laughs) (laughs) So the majority doesn't ultimately decide whether CFR courts are federal or tribal courts. Um, It says that what matters, the only thing that matters is that Dennis B. was prosecuted under tribal law. Um, And then subsequently prosecuted for violations of federal law. It doesn't matter if the person prosecuting him in the CFR court is a federal prosecutor who might be exercising federal authority. What matters is the law he is being prosecuted for is tribal law.
2: So like these two distinct bodies of law, even though they deal with the same offense, they're actually distinct. And therefore, these are two separate sovereigns and there's no double jeopardy problem. The dissent, however, takes issue with whether Dinespe was prosecuted for tribal law versus federal law. So they don't see the distinction as quite as stark as the majority does. And Justice Gorsuch, um, and, and it's worth noting here that Justice Gorsuch is the only member of the court who comes from the Mountain West, where yeah. federal Indian law is a big part of the 10th Circuit's docket. So, I think he feels he has a
1: certain facility with this. And I think he does. And like that's why I was suggesting the fact that he was on the other side from like what I thought was right is, is really giving me pause about this case.
2: Also worth noting, Justice Sotomayor, at the beginning of her tenure on the court, uh, served as the 10th Circuit's circuit justice. And yeah. in that role, she really took it upon herself to become more familiar with federal Indian law, which had not been as big a part of the docket of the Second Circuit. Uh, in any event... Justice Gorsuch says that Dinesby was convicted of a federal offense because the CFR court regulations assimilated the tribe's assault and battery ordinance. The majority declined to address that argument because it wasn't pressed or passed on below, but it does suggest that the dissent might not be right about this issue for two reasons. One is that there are federal statutes that explicitly incorporate other sovereigns' laws, like state laws, for example, and the fact that a federal statute doesn't do so clearly here might be a reason to think it is tribal law, not federal law that is being enforced.
1: And the majority also, um, and this I think is really important, says it's not dispositive, that is, it doesn't determine the answer here, that the assistant secretary must approve a tribal ordinance before that ordinance can be enforced in a CFR court because the secretary of the interior had to improve the tribal code, you know, that's enforced in tribal courts as well. Um, and the Supreme Court had already said in a previous case, Wheeler, the prosecutions in tribal court for violations of tribal law didn't bar subsequent prosecutions by the federal government.
2: So sticking with this theme of federal Indian law, the court also issued another decision in a case that combined both statutory interpretation, textual healing, and federal (laughs) Indian law, and that was Isleta del Sur Pueblo versus Texas. This was a federal Indian law case about the proper interpretation of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and the Isleta del Sur and Alabama and Cushata Indian Tribes of Texas Restoration Act. The big question in the case is whether the laws permitted tribes to operate on tribal lands, gaming activities that the state regulated but did not flat out prohibit. And I think the actual game in question, wasn't it bingo?
1: Yes. Yep.
2: <laughs> bingo.
1: B-I-N-G-O, 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 and bingo was his name. Yeah, that one. Nice. Um so in a 5-4 opinion by Justice Gorsuch, the court sided with the tribes and held that federal law only incorporated onto tribal lands state laws prohibiting certain gaming activities, not those regulating them. The court reached this conclusion largely by determining that Congress in the Restoration Act had preserved a distinction that had been established in the court's prior case, California versus Cabazon Band of Mission Indians, interpreting another statute but recognizing a distinction between regulation and prohibition there. And so Justice Gorsuch says Congress preserved that distinction in this Restoration Act. So
2: the case has some very typical, flowery, florid Neil M. Gorsuch (laughs) hallmarks about statutory interpretation. I mean, burning for textualism. Uh, Here's a few choice snippets. In the end... Texas retreats to the usual redoubt of failing statutory interpretation arguments, an unadorned appeal to public policy. And here's another. We appreciate these concerns, which, aside, he does not appreciate these concerns.
1: (laughs) Uh, Not appreciated.
2: (laughs) We appreciate these concerns, but they do not persuade us. Most fundamentally, they are irrelevant. It is not our place to question whether Congress adopted the wisest or most workable policy, only to discern and apply the policy it did adopt. Neil out. It's
1: just his inability to tone it down in any opinion on statutory interpretation. Like, he is incapable of not going it out. Neil's going to kneel. Exactly. Yeah. You know, this case, too, led to an interesting bedfellows lineup. The opinion was by Justice Gorsuch, joined by the three Democratic appointees and Justice Barrett. Um, I took this as a possibly encouraging sign for the outcome in Castro-Huerta, the pending case about, you know, the implications and possible limits to the Supreme Court's major tribal law opinion, McGirt, from a few terms ago. Just because the majority opinion that Justice Barrett signed starts out with a strong affirmation for tribal sovereignty and the court's precedence in this area, you know, the majority opinion goes into detail about the history of Texas and states' attacks on tribe sovereignty, whereas the dissent by Chief Justice Roberts – Begins in 1968, as if that's where <laughs> history begins, um, which is like really reminiscent of his opinion yes. from Shelby County versus Holder to me. Like, let's just pretend none of that other history happened and it's all good now.
2: <laughs> well, the Dissent is also another really great example of textual gerrymandering and decontextualization. Um, it focuses almost exclusively on this language, all and any, and, and really does not focus or even take seriously what the majority is interested in, which is the distinction between regulation and prohibition. So yeah, I wonder what both of these opinions, um, Dinesby and his later Del Sur Pueblo, suggest for the upcoming term when the court's going to take up that yeah. Indian Child Welfare Act case, um, yeah. Rakeen versus Holland, which I, I feel like these cases point in different directions for that case.
1: Yeah, um, I would be reticent to, like, read too much into them. I mean, in some ways, like, Denesby, I think, is, like, the more relevant one for that, and it's just hard to know exactly.
2: It's going to be really interesting um, how Justice Gorsuch reconciles his interest in tribal sovereignty and this body of federal Indian law that, you know, he seems to be the one who feels most fluent with, and this argument that the Indian Child Welfare Act is not about political sovereignty, but is rather about a racial classification. Stay tuned.
0: Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at Cricut.com slash friends.
1: Okay, so we're going to move to something of a lightning round because we do have a lot of opinions to cover. Um, they when brought we we this ad- on themselves. Exactly, <laughs> okay. exactly. Um it's almost like they're trying to hide the news of Ginny mm-hmm. by giving us 11 opinions this week. That's but we will theory. not
2: be stopped from our will not.
1: finding mission. You cannot stop the Ginny and Juice. Um, American Health versus Becerra is a case about reimbursement rates for hospitals under the Medicare Act. It was going to be a case about the future of Chevron deference, the doctrine that allows agencies to interpret ambiguous terms in statutes and is a big part of how the administrative state works. But the case didn't end up being that big of a Chevron case. Instead, the court applied a presumption of judicial review, the idea that courts get to review the actions of agencies, and concluded that the Department of Health and Human Services decisions about reimbursement rates were reviewable. And it
2: then concluded that HHS can't vary reimbursement rates for different hospital groups without survey data, otherwise rendering requirements for survey data superfluous. The agency specifically varied reimbursement rates for 340B hospitals, which perform valuable services for low-income and rural communities, but have to rely on limited federal funding for support.
1: This case had been styled as a challenge to Chevron, um, but that doctrine, the idea that courts should defer to an agency's construction of an ambiguous statute, goes unmentioned, and the court rests instead on its interpretation of the relevant statute, leading us to wonder, like, is Chevron deference a kind of Schrodinger's deference, right? The court doesn't (laughs) acknowledge it, doesn't defer, but doesn't do away with it. Um, It's in a kind of precarious state of being right now. Um, So just as Kavanaugh summed up, courts reviewing agencies' interpretation of statutes this way. He said, after employing the traditional tools of statutory interpretation, we do not agree with HHS's interpretation of the statute. Now, the traditional tools language is an invocation of Chevron. That's what Chevron had said courts should do. But Chevron, as faithfully understood, doesn't actually require the court to agree with an agency's interpretation only that the statute is ambiguous and the agency's interpretation is reasonable.
2: So this is basically the kind of reasoning that Justice Kavanaugh suggested at the oral argument in this case. Um, He was asking if the hospitals were merely asking the court to take footnote 9 of Chevron seriously. And that footnote urged courts to employ traditional tools of statutory construction to ascertain whether Congress had actually spoken to a particular issue. So it is invoking the themes of Chevron, but meaningfully, the opinion reframes, um, maybe not intentionally or clearly, reframes the inquiry under Chevron as whether The court agrees with the agency's interpretation based on the traditional tools of statutory construction, which I have to say is a pretty significant reframing um, and not inconsistent with some of the things the Roberts court does. I just kind of – these incremental, sort of subtle moves that, you know, yep. two terms later become like the
1: reason why we no longer have Chevron. We're not overruling Chevron, we're just underruling right. it and not we're, really applying it. So we're, we're yeah. underruling it, not exactly. overruling <laughs> it. Um, <Yeah. laughs> so it,
2: it, it's all really interesting. So the court is giving Chevron the silent treatment, but kind of not really either. Yeah. Eh. Yeah. The upshot is uh, the court concluded that the USFG wrongfully denied millions of dollars to hospitals in drug reimbursements. So there we are.
1: We also received another significant arbitration case, um, Viking River Cruises versus Moriana. Um, This is an arbitration case that we previewed. Now, the case didn't end up being as big a deal as it could have been, so we're not going to spend as much time on it. But it did involve some shade that was thrown at Justice Alito, which, of course, I feel compelled to highlight. Okay, why don't you highlight it? Well, we got to explain what the court did before I can do the shade. (laughs) Yes. Okay.
2: so let me do it. All right. The question in the case concerned California's Private Attorneys General Act and the Federal Arbitration Act. In brief... California's Private Attorneys General Act allows employees to bring suit on behalf of the state when employers violate labor laws. And when they do so, they can seek relief on behalf of the state. So say an employer was sued for minimum wage violations. Under the PAGA, Private Attorney General's Act, an employee could sue for all of the wages that an employer failed to pay. And most of that money would go to the state, not to the employee. But the point is that an employee could sue to recover more than just their own
1: damages. So the employee in this case had signed an arbitration agreement with her employer, and that agreement contained a provision saying the parties could not bring a dispute as a class or a representative action under California's Private Attorney General Act. The employee sued in federal court despite that arbitration agreement, and the employer then said, You can't do that because you agreed to arbitrate your individual claim and you can't bring the representative PAGA claim in arbitration proceedings. So the federal court has to dismiss it. So in this opinion, the
2: court said basically that the employer's right. That is, because this arbitration agreement says that you must arbitrate your individual claims, you can't bring a representative claim under PAGA. Um, You agree to that, and that's the end of the matter. Arbitration is the way forward. But, and this is a really big but, the court said that the Federal Arbitration Act does not prevent a state from creating these representative actions, i.e. the ability to litigate on behalf of the state. and. This is the big part. It's said that the Federal Arbitration Act allows states to create rules barring agreements that waive the right to bring representative action. So in other words, California could have a law that says here is a private attorney general's act that allows citizens to bring suit on behalf of the state. You cannot waive your right to bring a private attorney general's claim, which could be really significant.
1: It could be. Now, the reason that didn't work here and didn't allow the employee to bring their representative private attorney general claim is the Supreme Court said California's Private Attorney General's Act, did not provide a mechanism that allows an individual to bring a representative action in court if they don't also have the right to bring an individual claim in federal court. This is technical but important. The court said their reading of the California statute is California law didn't allow an individual employee who lacked the ability to bring an individual claim in federal court to then bring a representative claim on behalf of the state. This is a big caveat as Justice Sotomayor pointed out in her concurrence. And it's possible that the California legislature could amend PAGA to allow individuals to bring representative claims, even if they don't bring individual ones, or that the California Supreme Court could say, actually, our interpretation of PAGA is that an individual could bring a representative claim, even if they can't bring an individual one.
2: So now- Let's get to the shade. And it comes from Justice Amy Coney Barrett. And I have to say, she kind of shades Justice Alito pretty regularly. Um, do you remember like, her concurrence in Fulton
1: last term yeah. was a little shady? Um, yeah. Um, so <laughs> Justice Alito in Fulton wrote this like long historical analysis about how he thought Smith was wrong. And Justice Barrett said, while history looms large in this debate, I find the historical record more silent than supportive. And that was like her extent of her just dismissing his opinion in its entirety. It was basically like per my last email, I told you in conference <laughs> that I thought this was bullshit. <laughs> Bye. <All> right, yeah. <laughs> and, and now we get to the shade in Viking River Cruises, which is Justice Barrett writes a concurrence that says, I joined part three of the court's opinion. I would say nothing more than that. The discussion in parts two and four of the court's opinion is unnecessary to the result. And much of it addresses disputed state law questions as well as arguments not pressed or passed upon in this case. Drops a footnote. The same is true of part one. It's just like... Basically, all of this is a waste of my time. Yes to part three. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean,
2: Lady Safe Haven
1: brings the fire sometimes. (laughs) okay. So we didn't get an opinion in this case, um, but we did get an order that I wanted to highlight because it will bring us back to the first theme that Melissa suggested, you know, these opinions uh, sounded. And the order was in Andrews versus Texas. um, And it relates to... Some of our discussion on previous episodes about the court's lack of care for explicit textual rights, like the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. So this case arises out of a death penalty case from Texas. In a prior decision from 2020, aka from a court of a different era, the U.S. Supreme <laughs> Court held that Terrence Anders' counsel at his capital sentencing provided ineffective assistance of counsel. The counsel had failed to uncover, quote, an apparent tidal wave of, quote, compelling and, quote, Powerful mitigating evidence and failed to investigate and challenge the state's theory for why Andrus should be sentenced to death. Now, the court did not decide whether Andres had been prejudiced by his counsel's ineffectiveness. In order to establish ineffective assistance of counsel, you have to show both deficient performance and that the deficient performance prejudiced you. The Supreme Court sent the case back to the Texas courts to decide that question of prejudice. The Texas courts concluded there was no prejudice and affirmed the death sentence, and now the U.S. Supreme Court denied review. As Justice Sotomayor described in her dissent from the court's decision not to review this case— Quote, the Texas court concluded that Anders failed to establish prejudice based on its disagreement with and rejection of the determinations underlying this court's holding that Anders' counsel had rendered deficient performance. As a result, the dissenting judges below explained the Texas court's opinion was irreconcilable with this court's prior decision and barred by vertical stare decisis. Justice Sotomayor also pointed out that the Texas opinion affirming the death sentence referred to the Supreme Court as, quote, believing these things, or the facts as, quote, according to the court, or, quote, certain alleged failures by counsel. It's almost as if the U.S. Supreme Court is signaling to the lower courts, like, you don't have to follow our precedents you don't like as long as they were decided before Amy joined the court. I mean, it's just yeah real strong stare decisis is for suckers uh and, you know and stare decisis uh also for suckers in the lower federal courts and state courts too so there you go
2: that's worth mentioning on um, because we are recording today on friday and there was an, an opinion issued by the iowa supreme court in an abortion case which basically like they basically overruled their own decision from just a couple of years ago on the sort of standards for abortion and, and one can only look at that opinion and imagine like they're taking their cues from the court itself and its casual disregard for precedent so yeah yeah anyway good times good times good times All right, let's do one last opinion. Um, Again, they've been like just pushing out stuff. So like apologies if we are not getting into ZF Automotive versus (laughs) Luxshare. Truly apologies. It was unanimous consensus driven (laughs) court. So here, let's talk about George versus McDonough. Um, There, the court holds that a legal error applying a regulation that is contrary to statute is not grounds for reopening a federal agency's denial of benefits to a veteran. We previewed this case earlier. Um, The agency, the Department of Veteran Affairs, otherwise known as the VA, denied Mr. George benefits, but they invoked a regulation to deny him those benefits. And a court subsequently found that the regulation was invalid. It was contrary to law and to statute. So basically, the VA made a legal error in denying Mr. George the benefits he sought.
1: Now, by statute, you can reopen a denial of benefits if there were clear and unmistakable errors. And what the Supreme Court held in George is that a legal error applying a regulation that is contrary to law does not constitute a clear and unmistakable error. The
2: court leaned... (laughs) (laughs) Wait, just like
1: what? (laughs) What? Yeah, legal errors, not clear and unmistakable. Because they're legal, anyways. Right, exactly. What is law? It's right. We're just vibing here. We are just (laughs) vibing. And vibes can't be clear and unmistakable. Um, So the court leaned heavily on the fact that Congress had incorporated a pre existing doctrine under which changes in law were not grounds for reopening a case. This opinion was 6 3. It was written by Justice Barrett. And Justice Gorsuch, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Breyer were in dissent here. Once again, we must ask, in an existential way, where was Justice Kagan? (laughs) Right. Let's come back to this question at the end of the term. Okay. Um, Yeah. I think I think
2: think we've got to like we got to play a little. Where's Elena?
1: Like right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. As uh, Mark Stern pointed out on Twitter, George is the fourth case, this term in which Barrett has authored an opinion for the court and Gorsuch has authored the dissent. Um, And George is the case we were talking about when we said that one of the themes of this term is you are shit out of luck if other people screwed up. Like lawyerly incompetence, governmental incompetence does not give folks a pathway to relief or even reconsideration. This was the bottom line of Shin versus Martinez-Ramirez. It was the bottom line of Patel versus Garland, holding that federal courts can't review factual mistakes in denials of discretionary immigration relief. And, you know, Shin, of course, is the case that's like, well, yeah, the state appointed you to ineffective attorneys, that's your fault, and there's nothing the federal courts can do about it. I really worry. I don't think it's this is the intentional purpose of the court deciding these cases this way, but I do think, like, if you make government ineffective, if you don't allow government to correct its mistakes, like you are delegitimizing government, right? Like this is why people become disillusioned. Like the government won't even admit its errors it won't correct its errors. You're not even like allowing a minimal pathway to reconsideration. It's just, it's not great.
0: Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at Crooked.com slash friends.
2: They really want us not to talk about Jenny Thomas, and I am just, I'm not here for it. I'm gonna, no,
1: I, I'm I gonna will do not it. I'm gonna, be distracted. I will not your be distracted. Your opinion in ZF Automotive is not going to do it.
2: Your dig in Arizona versus city of San Francisco <laughs> will not dissuade me, Supreme Court. I am. I do what I want. And what I want to do right now is talk about court culture. So listeners, grab your Ginny Tonic because it's that time in the episode. And if you want to know how to make a Ginny Tonic, it is two parts Gin. <laughs> Half a part of tonic, <laughs> a side of salt, bitters, shaken and served over ice with a garland of a twist of Mike Pence
1: arm. And a little seditious conspiracy, right? Swirling around. That's what you shake
2: it up with. Shake it up with insurrectionist energy.
1: Okay. Can I I just say one of my students who did research for me and just graduated gave me a lovely thank you gift that included all of the makings for a Ginny tonic saying, I think you might need this for the end of the term. It was one of the best gifts I have ever received. Let's start with American Constitution Society held their annual convention first time um, in 3 years so
2: they're, they they yeah. were back in person first time in 3 years I will I I attended um I attended for like literally 2 hours um and, and it was it was it was lovely to see everyone there um one of the highlights I think of the program was an interview between Tiffany Wright Strict scrutiny, super fan, super guest. Super guest, always levels up everything she levels participates in. all the way up. Um, she, she's the Ciara of this podcast. And she, she had the pleasure and privilege of interviewing her former boss, Justice Sotomayor. And Justice Sotomayor... Took Tiffany on a little walkabout of the room, as she is wont to do, where she laid hands on all of the (laughs) attendees, maybe healed some injuries, who knows, but she talked about her colleagues, and
1: it got a lot of press. And she was just a little ray of sunshine, she right? Was. Like taking a page out of Kate Shaw's book, putting her to shame. She really did. She re- she was, you know, she was very optimistic. She was like, you know, the court, the court can recover the public's confidence. And saying, you know, Clarence, Justice Thomas, he really cares about the institution. And and
2: I I think she's really talking – like, he's nice to many of the workers in the court's ecosystem, which
1: I I do agree is a a, a good thing to do. Next time someone is listing the institutionalists on the court, right? Like, Justice Sotomayor's name needs to be in there because because the chief justice and all of the conservatives – could not ask for a fucking better emissary right now oh, yeah. than Justice Sotomayor at the American Constitution Society, telling everyone public yeah. confidence in the court can recover. Justice Thomas cares about the people at the court. I mean, come on, she was like the best freaking PR person they could have had. Like, yeah. like, and, like I didn't buy it
2: necessarily. <laughs> I'm cynical and jaded like <laughs> I am beyond hope but there I, were there were, there were students there and I think maybe they believed
1: I was gonna say I'm not sure I was necessarily convinced either but you know she she did bring the sunshine and the positivity and the hope which you know we we do need
2: I have to say when she talked about you know like you know Justice Thomas is a good person he's a good friend part of me was just like Oh my God. Blink twice. What's the safe word? What's the safe uh, word? (laughs) Um, But then also, just like, you know, this is like a job with eight other people that you're going to have for the foreseeable future. And like, right. I mean, they don't
1: have the luxury of having a podcast and getting able to share their feelings and work them out without restraint every week. So... I mean, at
2: least on a faculty, you can just stop going to the faculty meetings.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. At you least can't do that. right, exactly. Hypothetically, a colleague might just stop talking to you. And or then... be like, I don't know her. Right, exactly. <laughs> I don't know her. <laughs> I don't know her. <laughs> yeah.
2: She doesn't even go here. You know, there were some people on Twitter throwing shade at Justice Sotomayor. And I'm just like, I'm just going to give her a wide berth because, like, I don't even know what it's like to go to work in those conditions. I thought that – here's my segue. You know, she talked about what a good person Clarence Thomas (laughs) was. And then the January 6th committee talked about what uh, topic of interest
1: Clarence (laughs) Thomas' wife was. So
2: that's my segue, and I'm sticking to it.
1: I think that's totally fair because the Washington Post reported that Ginny Thomas was communicating with former Thomas law clerk John Eastman about overturning the election. John Eastman, of course, is the person who wrote memos encouraging this theory whereby state legislatures could disregard the votes of state citizens and just appoint all of their electors to vote for Trump who lost their state's vote and steal the election. Well,
2: And it's it's a theory that he actually seemed to acknowledge, according to the committee's testimony, was batshit crazy.
1: I mean – you know, it seemed like the testimony was that Eastman admitted, you know, a suit based on this theory would lose, but 9-0. only because
2: the 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 law in question is unconstitutional.
1: Right. Although he did acknowledge maybe it would lose seven two. I wonder who those two faithful um, might be. Could be, be anybody. Um, Leah. Could, could be, be anybody. anybody. Um, yeah. I think. I think Steve Breyer's vote was in play.
2: So much came out. So one, Eastman was suggesting that he kind of knew where the votes might come from for this theory on the court.
1: How would he well, know? Yes. So so the New York Times, following up on that bombshell Washington Post report that Jenny Thomas was in communication with John Eastman, New York Times reported that Eastman sent the following email, quote, so the odds of the lawsuit, that is, are not based on the legal merits, but an assessment of the justices' spines. And I understand that there is a heated fight underway for those willing to do their duty. We should help them by giving them a Wisconsin cert petition to add into the mix. Dun, dun, dun. So,
2: I mean, okay. And poor Justice Sotomayor – we can restore faith in the court. <laughs> <laughs> Poor <laughs> Justice. <laughs> of my heart. She's trying so hard. Um, okay, so a couple of things just to note here, right? Um, so one, Ginny Thomas is in communication with him. Yep, Not really surprising. He's part of their milieu. Like, you remember, we talked yeah. about um, the listserv, the Thomas listserv. He's ostensibly on that. I imagine that they are in communication Um There was a lawsuit involving whether certain emails could be disclosed, and Clarence Thomas was the only dissenter in that case, and I kind of wonder why now that all this stuff is coming out.
1: I mean the specter is just so reeking of impropriety and Well so so that is the point Leah like yes it actually isn't like I don't actually
2: know if there's any impropriety and I'm not going to say that there is but legal ethics suggests that it doesn't matter it's the, it's the appearance. appearance yes yeah, it's the stench
1: it's the-, it's the stench can this institution survive the stench that was the question Justice Sotomayor asked. But she says yes. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> she's like, you got to put a mask on, but yes. <laughs> and and I did want to know, you know, one specific thing about this Eastman email referring to the heated fight underway. I don't know that this is definitive proof that, like, someone is telling him internal deliberations about the court. As people pointed out on Twitter, this email was sent after the Supreme Court had denied the petitions for certiorari asking the court to intervene in the electoral count before the vote was certified. And you have to take this with a grain of, this is, of course, all part of like a grift. But again, like that being said, the appearance of impropriety it's just through the roof. It's all over. And like, even if this this is said in order to like get money, he's he's conveying, I have an ear, an insight, an inside person on the court. I know what's going on there. So let me connect some disparate threads, right? So we have John
2: Eastman purporting to have an in at the court, like someone yeah. who to whom he can feed information and who in turn is perhaps feeding him information.
1: A sober, not an apparently inebriated John Eastman. Um, right. Yeah. Um, and then Ginny Thomas
2: is exchanging text mm-hmm. messages with him, query mm-hmm. whether she is the person with whom this flow of information is coming. Um, then the leak of the Dobbs draft opinion. Yes. I mean – are people putting this together or is it just
1: us cooking up a little conspiracy? Because <laughs> like, I, 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 I think that, like, I mean, loose lips sink ships. Yeah. <laughs> right. Snitches get stitches. <laughs> Obviously, they don't. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Not.
2: Um, Snitches should get subpoenaed. But, right. <laughs> right. It's
1: just like it feels like the court is kind of a sieve, but yes. maybe it's just her. I mean, uh, we don't know, right? I don't know. And the fact that we don't know, and again, the fact that the appearance of this impropriety raises these questions that then can't be answered because there isn't an inspector general for the court, there at least are not yet subpoenas to Ginny Thomas. It's creating this real problem that is delegitimizing the court and making it very difficult to have anyone view that institution with a sense of oh yeah like things are okay there
2: it's, it's just wackadoodle um so the hearings in the january 6th committee this week i think were just wild bananas if you haven't been watching them you you really should i mean it, it was just yeah. a lot of stuff so you know the second day of hearings was basically about the way in which the trump administration slash campaign cultivated this big lie and essentially used it as a grift Yes. When someone loses an election, typically the money dries up. No one gives money to people who have lost their campaign. But they fed this lie that the election had been stolen and they requested all of these donations and they got them. And
1: then apparently they started parcelling them out to these other like like the Trump you know, hotels got some. What's so astonishing is like that entire development right underscores the need for the statute that the court invalidated this term in FEC versus Cruz, which is candidates after an election who continue to collect money are at greater risk of putting that money directly into their pockets, and there's a greater risk of corruption.
2: That's one sort of real court adjacent issue. Not court adjacent, but perhaps DOJ adjacent is like, doesn't this sound like wire fraud? Like i'm I'm no prosecutor, but I mean, I can read a statute. like, right?
1: So it does. And yet we have to come back to the Supreme Court again because guess who's made it so hard, if not impossible, to prosecute instances of political corruption under general fraud statutes the Supreme Court. Oh, right? Bridgegate! They, br- exactly! Bridgegate! like Exactly, like they narrow fraud statutes in the Bridgegate case. Kelly, they narrow honest services under McDonald. And, yeah. you know, th- the court has been steadily chipping away at prosecutorial tools to prosecute political corruption. And so, yes, this does sound like wire fraud, but to a Supreme Court that thinks this is just politics and, like, this is a... Feature, not a bug. You know, I don't know. Like, look how how quickly we just like it just
2: escalated. Like, first it was just like Chris Christie shutting down the GW Bridge because she <laughs> was pissed, and now it's like a full on coup. And, like, right. gr- And grifting. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, so that was the second day, and to me that was just wild because that just yeah. looked like fraud. Anyway, yeah. the third day focused on Vice President Mike Pence and the effort to get him to throw out the slate of electors and to insert the alternative Trump electors. And Mike Pence himself did not appear before the committee. Really interesting. Uh, But two or three surrogates um, either appeared in person or by deposition testimony that had been videotaped. Um, Among those appearing was former Fourth Circuit judge and one-time Supreme Court um, hopeful J. Michael Ludig, who basically said that he intervened when he was asked um, to give advice to the vice president, it was like, this is, like, seriously messed up, probably criminal, definitely unconstitutional. Please abort whatever you think
1: you're doing. And and he's a died in the wool conservative. This is no he, liberal switch He was squish. shortlisted yes. for the seats that went to Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. Yeah. So I thought that was
2: really, really interesting. Um. I mean, FYI, this whole like Mike Pence as a hero narrative is wild. Spare me. me. I mean, I'm just like, dude, never disputed the big lie and just like literally on the last day decided, oh, wait, didn't I take an oath to defend the Constitution? Let me do that. He gets nothing from me for that. But I do appreciate these people stepping in to say, like, this was crazy. And yes, we told him yeah, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you think
1: the DOJ is going to do anything? Um, if I had to. Yes. Um there will not be like high level members of the Trump campaign or Trump circle who would be prosecuted under a theory of like wire fraud for anything related to this. It, I guess that would be my intuition. <sighs>
2: okay. Sorry. I'm, no, I'm no, no I'm i I'm mean, no Sonia
1: Sotomayor, right? I just I know. you're
2: not. You're
1: not I'm not Sonia Sunshine Sotomayor. You're not. <laughs>
2: Tonya sunshine. Sotomayor, or that's it. SS stands for sunshine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's not all the time we have. Like, let's yeah. end on that depressing note. Um <laughs> terrific. Okay. Thanks for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed this particular cocktail hour. Before we let you go, we want to alert you to some exciting news. Crooked has a new podcast, Mother Country Radicals, and it's out now. In this 10 Um, This is a 10-episode series where host Zayd Ayers-Dorn takes us back to the 1970s when his parents and their young friends in the Weather Underground organization declared war on the United States government. The story explores the progressive reasons and deadly consequences of this monumental time in history with both archival footage and firsthand interviews of nearly every living member of the Weather Underground and Black Liberation Army.
1: Leah, I'm loving it so far. Do you like it? I've really been enjoying it. Um, I have been listening to it um, on my walks with Stevie. How does Stevie like it? Stevie's a fan. Two paws up way yeah. yes. four paws up honestly she rolls over <laughs> on the ground sticks them all up so <laughs> and so are the
2: critics rolling over and sticking their <laughs> hands up because they love it too um, the podcast actually just won in the best audio storytelling category at the Tribeca Film Festival and you can listen to the first four episodes of Mother Country Radicals right now wherever you get your podcast you can cue it up right after strict scrutiny it's a great chaser for your refreshing Ginny tonic the drink of the summer cheers Strict Scrutiny is a Crooked Media production hosted and executive produced by Leah Littman, Melissa Murray, and Kate Shaw. It's produced and edited by Melody Rowell with audio engineering by Kyle Seglin, music by Eddie Cooper, production support from Michael Martinez, Sandy Gerard, and Ari Schwartz, digital support from Amelia Montooth, and summer intern support from Anushka Chander.